0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Sovereign Lord, and yet our Father in heaven, we praise you this afternoon. Thank you for good news today. Good news about Joel and Jay Sheree, Lord, and good news with regards to the gospel, that makes everything that we appreciate possible. Would you help us, Lord, as we all sit under your word, to hear what you have to say to us by your spirit, and Lord, would you give us the grace to respond, bringing glory and honor to yourself and to the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Amen. So, we are in First Timothy Third part in a series that we've started called the Household of God, and that is God's healthy household. It's one thing to have a household. We've got a couple of new households being created this year. A few different people getting married, and um, we want you to have a household, but we want you to have a healthy household. So hopefully, some of the things that we talk about in this series are going to benefit you. Um, but particularly for us as a church, that is the household of God. We want to be healthy. Amen. So I'm going to ask you to turn to First Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to be dealing with verse 8 to 20, quite a large section today. I'm going to start reading from verse 3, and I'm reading from the ESV. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting these, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Last week we saw, I don't know if you remember, that there was havoc in the home. Today we will seek to address that by talking about home improvement. Now first of all, let me remind you about the problem. At this time, there were those in Ephesus who were teaching different doctrines. Some of these doctrines possibly may have been things like, did you hear that in the Garden of Eden, the birds and the animals, they all communicated with each other right up to the moment when Adam and Eve were rejected from the Garden. All the animals spoke the same language. Or a quote regarding genealogies, reflecting on Genesis 5. Have you ever wondered not only where Cain got his wife from, but also what her name was? Well, her name was Awan. And Seth's wife, her name was Azura. How about Abraham? Apparently, Abraham, when he was 14 years old, he didn't like the fact that his dad and the rest of his family were worshipping idols. So he left. And that was the reason why he left. Now, this all sounds very interesting and could even sound biblical to the untrained ear, right? But these are myths, (laughs) These are unbiblical genealogies. Early first century um, writings were called a pseudopigrapha Between 200 BC and 200 AD, that 400-year period, they had a collection of, of Jewish writings that came under this name. Included in there was, did you know that angels keep the Sabbath? Did you know that angels were circumcised? That's in chapter 2, verse 18, and chapter 15, verse 27. Not in the Bible, but in the book of Jubilees, which is a part of the pseudopigrapha. <clears throat> now, it then moves, if you like, on from that which is foolish and false to what we would now categorize as dangerous. Listen to this. The heavenly father was once a mortal man living on a particular planet and he became worthy to become a god who then met a goddess, as you do, right? Who became his wife with whom he then had billions of children. The first they had was a son called Jesus who had a spirit brother called Lucifer. See what I mean when I say dangerous? And the thing is, this particular portion of quote-unquote quote, truth isn't from the first century, but it's actually from the 21st century. These are the writings of the Church of Latter-day Saints, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormons. And there are hundreds of similar cult groups, all sound, all sounding fascinating, but all false. How about the teaching of Purgatory. I mean, how many individuals are there on the planet that believe wholeheartedly that there's going to be a time when they die to make up for their sins? And depending on how bad you are will determine how long you stay there. And if you've got, pe- if you've got family members who are still alive, they can pray you out of purgatory and they can also give money to contribute to you getting out of purgatory like, early. Also, you're, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that that's the Roman Catholic Church's teaching. They talk about the Immaculate Conception, right? that Mary was born, not that Jesus was born without sin, Mary was born without sin. Transubstantiation, where the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Jesus. Christians, like us, were burnt at the stake because they disagreed with transubstantiation. Holy water. Mary is the comediatrix Co redemptrix and co advocatrix. How many of you know it's all tricks, right? <laughs> How many of you know that? Here's the next one that Jesus is coming back. We say him into that? Right. See, everyone's nervous to say him into anything right about now, right? <laughs> and we have a responsibility to tell the world that Jesus is coming back. But what we don't do, we don't tell them when. This is a man called, you're probably familiar with him, Harold Camping. He's co-creator of the Family Radio Network, which is best known for making predictions. What kind? False ones. He has predicted that the rapture would occur on four different occasions. First, he said it would would happen in September 1994. Then he revised that particular date to March 1995, a year or so later. More recently, on May 21st, 2011, he said that Jesus was going to return. See, save the date, you know. Put in your diary. May 21st. Two- and Can you see the name of the website? We can know. <laughs> Remember what Paul says about these false teachers. Very confident. We can know. Oh. And that's, a, that's at a bus shelter. And these guys, they had adverts up everywhere, you know. Here's another one, basically just, again, saying the same thing. See, now, they gave this date, May 21st, 2011. Then, either Jesus forgot that he was supposed to come (laughs) back, right? Or camping had miscalculated. Then he had to kind of push back. The coming of the kingdom of God to October. And you see how this becomes farcical. Judgment Day. What is it? Oh, it's not May 21st. It was, but we changed the date now to October. And obviously, this is someone just has, has kind of taken the Mickey out of what's going on. And you see the big seal of approval in big, like, bright. The Bible guarantees it, you know. so dangerous and this isn't this is common in that people see that and they just laugh and they think you stupid Christians you know what I'm saying you stupid Christians parenthesis with a stupid bible close parenthesis right look at what someone did in response this is um, the freedom from religion foundation part of the atheists society between 2005 and 2009, Family Radio raised $80 million. <laughs> Sometimes it pays to be wrong. How messed up is that? This is not only dangerous, it's damaging. Now, <clears throat> there's false teaching that's much closer to home, but this will come to light as we go through the rest of the Book of Timothy. Churches, institutions, and individuals who teach such heresy are deceivers, and they're deceived, aren't they? Past, present, and future. Sadly, is something that's going to continue. Therefore, we must be on our guard. Now back to our text. Similarly, this is what has been happening in Ephesus. And it wasn't just out, outside the church that they were teaching similar heresies. They had now actually infiltrated the church. And in verse 3, Paul says to Timothy, Remain in Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That is doctrine, doctrines that were different or distinct or in contradiction to what? The apostle's Doctrine, the apostles' teaching. In Acts chapter 2, at the birth of the church, those who became Christians did what? Acts 2. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. See what they devoted themselves to? But, but these heretics in Ephesus... Look at verse 4. They're devoted, but not to the apostles' doctrine. But as I mentioned a moment ago, to myths and endless genealogies. But it doesn't stop there. They also have a desire to do something else. Look at verse 7. Desiring to be teachers. If you just keep your Bible open in 1 Timothy. Verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law. Without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. These men wanted to teach something that they didn't even comprehend. They wanted to teach the Old Testament, but without a clear understanding of the Old Testament. Now how many of you know that ain't no how many of you know it ain't no joke like that is the Old Testament? The Old Testament ain't something to play with. So, if you don't understand it, just say you don't understand it. But it's not the type of book to try to confidently assert that you understand it if you don't. It's dangerous to, uh, to take, especially God's word, and determine to use it in a way that is... Now... Before we jump into this, that is issues relating to the old testament, um, issues relating to the law, Paul's gonna do something twice. Paul will make two digressions, which really encourages me greatly because you know I like to have a, a little nice digression now and again. Gonna try not to today. And Paul doesn't do it once but twice. He digresses, then digresses from his digression. Watch. He won't get back to his point until verse 18. First, he mentions the way that these men handle the law. Then he says, hold on a minute, let me say something about the law. Then he says, having dealt with the law that inevitably brings him to the gospel, he then says, wait a minute, let me tell you something about the gospel. Can you see the double digression? Then when he's finished talking about the gospel, he then says, okay, let's get back to this issue of false teachers in verse 18 through 20. Now, Paul says, these guys, they desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand the law. Listen to what he then says in verse eight. Now, we know that the law is good. To one who uses it lawfully or to the one who uses it properly. And just because these false teachers were abusing the law doesn't mean that the law was bad. The law is good, but it wasn't being used properly. How many of you know a hammer is good? But only if you use it properly. Driving nails into wood is good use of the hammer. But using a hammer in violent, intimidating, and threatening behavior is not good. There were possibly two ways in which these false teachers were abusing the law. One, they were using the law initially in their teaching. But only as a springboard for them to launch into their erroneous speculations. I mean, they'd hold up the Bible like Harold Camping. Did you see the picture of him? Holding up with his finger in the, in the air. Confident. And using, and, and using the Bible to support his assertions. You see that? They would start off these teachers, teachers by talking about scripture then move nicely to their own opinions. The second way um, they were possibly misusing the law was by setting it up as a means for justification. Setting up the law as a means for justification. See, making the works of the law necessary for salvation. Dangerous. Dangerous. Why? Because Galatians 2 says if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If I can be justified by keeping the law, what on earth did Jesus die for? I don't need his death because I can do this on my own. Dangerous. Romans 3.28 says, for we hold, that is those that hold to sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, the apostles' doctrine, we hold that one is justified, how? By faith apart from the works of the law. So then, if that is the case, what is the purpose of the law? Galatians 3.24 says, So then, the law... Basically was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. That's the purpose of the law. The law leads us to Christ. I think I've got another translation here. So then the law, this is the ESV, was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified. How? Not by keeping the law, but by faith by faith in the very thing that we can't ignore, which is the cross and the crucifixion, the death of Christ. We can't be saved apart from that. That's why teaching that you can be saved by the law is dangerous. It's dangerous. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. See, the law was never created by God, to be the mode through which we could be saved. The purpose of the law is to show us how sinful we are. That's the purpose of the law. To show us how sinful we are. Romans Romans 3 verse 19 and 20 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth. That's what the law does. He says you're guilty. You're like, hmm. if you're honest, you will be like, hmm. yeah, I'm guilty. And the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in His sight. Why? Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law is to show us how sinful we are, which in turn would cause us. To cry out to God, oh my gosh, I'm guilty. You know how people get when they get caught and there's no way out, and they're standing before the judge. If they got any sense, right, they'd be on their knees, like, "Please, God, have me." Please. The whole attitude and demeanor changes because they're desiring for mercy. Why? Because the law exposed their sinfulness. The law has exposed their error and they know what's coming next. If the judge don't show mercy, it's judgment. See, the law is a schoolmaster. It's a teacher that points us to Christ for salvation as it shows us the knowledge of our sin. Now look at what... The law is good as long as one uses it. See, lawfully, when it's used for its proper purpose, the law is good and it works powerfully. That's why them brothers use it on a Friday night when they are evangelizing. Now look at what Paul says in verse 9 of our text. Understanding this. See, because they didn't understand but he's saying, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, for the righteous, for the saved. Laying down, laying down the law, as we'll see later on in First Timothy 4, is what these guys do. What do they say in First Timothy 4? They suggest that Christians ought not to eat certain foods. Even adding to the law and they suggest that christians ought not to get married there was a teaching like that in in first timothy we'll come to it in first timothy 4 now the bible explicitly says that marriage is good now you're going to add a law to the law that contradicts the law the law isn't for Christians to keep in order to be saved or to stay saved. That's not the purpose of the law. And how many of us get tied up in that? Because we're not, quote unquote, keeping the law, feel like, wow, I've lost my salvation. Or, I'm I'm just a really bad Christian. Because, now I'm not saying that we ought not to feel like that from time to time. We ought to, but not to the point where Man, I'm not going to church, you know. Because when I look at the law and I look at the way I am, I just, I'm just not measuring up. What? That's a good thing. When you see that, when you appreciate that you don't measure up, that's a good thing. That's the law doing its job. But then don't trust the law now to save you on the basis of you keeping it. See, who is the law for? Second part of verse 9. Paul begins to outline it, but... The Lord's for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Wow. Why is Paul being so specific and even repetitive? He just said the same thing three times. Now remember, this is an open letter. This will be circulated in all of the churches throughout Ephesus. Everyone will have an opportunity to hear this. The false teachers will have an opportunity to read this. Paul goes on. The laws for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, that is, adulterers. Now, how do we feel as we hear this list read? Wow. Sexually immoral. Sexual immorality, prevalent in the world, but sexual immorality is prevalent in the church. Does that make me nervous? Does it make you nervous when you hear sexually immoral? Men who practice homosexuality. The NIV, translate that perverts. He goes on, enslavers. Another translation says slave traders. You might be like, oh wow, well, you know what, we're going through this list, I'm nice. Yes. I don't feel offended at anything in this particular, oh, look at what comes next. Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to, to sound, healthy doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted, said Paul. Now as I hear that list, I'm like, a couple of things, kind of make me flinch. Because I know in my heart is the desire to even do some of those things. You know what I mean? Um, I can't say that, you know, by the grace of God, I can't say that I'm caught up in anything you know, that you'd be nervous about at present. But I could be. You could be. You know what I mean? Part of the job of the Lord is to warn us For those of us who are Christians. Now, I wonder if Paul is sensing these these false teachers listening in. Because they may not necessarily feel like me and feel like you. Like, liars. Ouch, Lord. Yeah. I I actually lied this week. And it was not cool. It was not good. These false teachers, when they hear lists like this, they're like, hmm, amen. Amen. You know what I'm saying, And they're not looking at themselves, they're looking at other people because it's never them, you know what I mean? It's always somebody else who comes under the judgment of God and they look down on the wretched sinner in self-righteous condemnation, right? And I wonder if Paul is doing here what he did in Romans 1. In Romans 1 at the end there's this long list, remember he talks about those who worship the creature rather than the creator and he talks about um, those who are involved in homosexuality. And, and he goes through this long list towards the end. I think it's one of the longest lists of sins that he reels, up, reels off. And, and the thing is, when he, when he reels this off, he's obviously speaking to the Gentile, right? Those who are outside of, 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 of relationship with God. And he's exposing the sinfulness of the world. And then it's as if Paul detects that the religious, the arrogant, condescending, judgmental Jew is looking in and saying, hmm, yeah, that's right, get them, Paul. Tell them about themselves. And Paul then switches, and he starts Romans 2 by now speaking to the religious law keeper, quote, unquote, because they don't really keep the law, and says in Romans 2, he says, therefore, he says, look, you think you have an excuse? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead who? You! To repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And no doubt, Paul got this method, I mean it's clever, exposing not just the sins of the world, but the sins of those who are in the church who used to be in the world, and I actually know better, we're just sinners saved by grace. We never have the right to point and to judge in that sense. Because we're, because we're no better. And I suspect Paul got this method of rebuke from the Lord Jesus, who did it with pinpoint accuracy. Watch the Lord Jesus in Matthew 23, speaking again to the same category of religious individual. In Matthew 23, verse 27, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're not a hypocrite, is, right? Someone, that's, a, that's, a, that's a pretender or the word is is actor. It's like, you know that my name's Robert, but come and see me tonight because I'm going to be in a Broadway show and I'm going to be playing the part of, I don't know, the Wizard of Oz, you know what I'm saying? And you come in and you see me, I've got my long black cloak on, I've got some kind of frizzy hairstyle and some big glasses going on, and you see me and you look, oh, there's Robert and, 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 but it's it's not me, it's, I'll be like, no, it's not me, it's the Wizard of, I'm the Wizard of Oz, right? Right behind the, right? But Now you know when you come to watch I'm the Wizard of Oz Now a child will sit there and think Why is Uncle Robert up there acting so strange And that's the point A hypocrite, an actor, a pretender Is someone who is one thing When you see them here And they're another thing when you see them over here The Hebrew word for for hypocrite Is chameleon And they can just be green one minute, and just matching with the with the undergrowth, and the next minute they're in the sand, and you can't see them because they're brown. They're, they're, they're a light shade of like brown, like my like my like my corduroys. Chameleon, hypocrite. He says, Jesus says, "Woe to you, you hypocrites! You're one thing." He says, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. But inside, you're full of dead people's bones. not like a tomb. Filled with all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within, you're full of hypocrisy and what? Lawlessness. See, both groups. Jesus' group and Paul's, Timothy's group in Ephesus, they're teachers of the law, but they themselves don't keep it. They're teaching others. Jesus said you lay heavy burdens on individuals and you won't help them with one of your fingers. See, you, you, you teach the law, but you yourself don't keep it. You're lawless. Paul's digression, although seemingly irrelevant, right?, Is poignant and powerful, which which in a very subtle way, indirectly speaks to them as they read or listen to this very letter. Paul then says, you guys are being unfaithful, but I can't afford to be. Can you see it in verse 11? I've been entrusted. I've been appointed to this. I'm accountable to God, and I understand the law. I understand the Old Testament and I see that it isn't an end in itself but it leads somewhere. But you can't see that because your doctrine isn't sound. Notice where this bad behavior finds its root in unhealthy doctrine which is the opposite to healthy or sound doctrine. It's contrary. It doesn't conform. It contradicts. Your beliefs are wrong. No wonder your behavior is messed up. Paul here uses the law lawfully, properly, even to help these foolish, false teachers. Can you see how this ebbs and it flows? Okay, he has now dealt with issues relating to the purpose of the law. That was Paul's first digression. Here comes the second. If you like, Paul now says... If your doctrine was healthy or sound, you would end up where I have in verse 11. And where does he end up? At the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Now this digression, although distinctly different from the first one, naturally flows from the first. What does the law do? It leads. It brings an individual to Christ. Paul is now going to give... He's going to give us a real-life example of an individual who has had this very experience. And who is it? It's Paul. It's himself. In verse 12 to 17, he will share his own personal testimony. Look at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, as he mentioned at the beginning of the chapter, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. Now, is Paul here glorifying himself, saying, Boy, the Lord found or considered, after much scrutiny, my great faithfulness. Is he exalting his own attributes? No. Notice Paul clearly saying from the outset of verse 12, that any strength that he had came from the Lord. Any faithfulness that was displayed by Paul was based on strength that Jesus had provided. Paul could take as much credit for being faithful as he could for being appointed. None. It all came from Jesus, the strength, his ability to be faithful, and his commissioning, all of it. Hence, his giving of thanks. Especially in the light of, or should I say, in the shadow of, his past, right? Right? Verse 13, <clears throat> he says, though formerly I was a blasphemer. This is his past. The New Living Translation says blasphemer is someone who would scoff at the name of. And in this, in this context, it was Christ. He scoffed at the name of Christ. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor and he was an insolent opponent. That means he was a violent man. What is he saying here? He's, He's saying that he was a sinner. He's saying that he was a transgressor of what? The law. And as you can see, the law, is, the law has done and is doing its work in his heart. Paul had broken the first, second, third, the sixth, and the eighth commandment. Just right there. The first commandment he broke. He wasn't loving God. And then in turn, he definitely wasn't loving his neighbor when he was out there killing Christians. He broke the second commandment because Paul was proud and arrogant with himself at the center of worship, not God. What's that? It's idolatry. It's breaking the second commandment. He broke the third commandment because he had taken the Lord's name in vain. And you know, taking the Lord's name in vain ain't just Banging your hand with the hammer when you're using it properly and saying, oh, Jesus Christ. That is taking the name of the Lord's name in vain. But fundamentally, taking the Lord's name in vain is when you take the Lord's name to yourself and say, yeah, you know, I'm a Christian. And I mean, I'm a Christian. And then you misrepresent Christ. And that's what Paul was like. Paul was like, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. Look at me. Mad Credentials. You know what I'm saying, had letters from all of the synagogues. They're like, what? Paul, rubber stamp. No, I don't even have to read it. Who? Paul, rubber stamp. And it was like, Paul was. And he thought that what he was doing was actually pleasing God. Now, <clears throat> he takes the name of the Lord's name in vain, and, he, and it's called blasphemy. I want you just to make a mental note of that because we're going to come back to it. Blasphemy. He also broke the 6th and the 8th commandment, right? The 6th commandment is what? You must not We've got to take you look back to children's church, man. <laughs> the 6th commandment is you must not kill. You must not kill and that's exactly what he did. He was a murderer, murdering, and not just murdering anyone, murdering Christians at that. And then he broke the 8th commandment because he incarcerated people, right? He put people in prison, stealing their freedom. And then on top of that he was killing people And he was stealing their lives. That's theft. That's breaking the eighth commandment. Formerly, Paul was a toe rag, right? Paul was a scumbag. Paul was a nasty piece of work. But he says, but I received mercy. Maybe somebody needs to hear that this afternoon. Paul says, Look at what I was. Blatant, like commandment, break, law, break, ha. And yet he received mercy. Because he says, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, this doesn't mean that he didn't know what he was doing. He did. And he was culpable, he was guilty for what he did. But he didn't realize his error. He was ignorant of the truth. He did it blindly. Remember the prayer of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. Paul actually thought that he was doing God's will. Wow, where was this all my life? Paul actually thought that he was doing God's will until his understanding was illuminated. On top of that, verse 14 seems to indicate A great shower of undeserved favor comes upon Paul that has two elements. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. See that? With the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. How many of you know Paul had no genuine faith or unconditional love for anyone? See, that's what religious people are like. They're very hard, they're very cold. We don't want to be religious. Religious people are horrible people. You know, the religious people are the ones that Jesus always went in on hard. Don't be religious. May God help us not to be that. Because religious people, they don't have genuine faith and they don't have unconditional love for anyone. Paul may have been tenacious, zealous and sincere, but he was sincerely wrong, wasn't he? But God showed him grace, and you've heard it before grace. It's an acronym, right? It' in the Bible, by the way, but people have made this up, but it's good. Uh, we just have to make sure we clarify that. Grace: God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. We get, we get all of all of the benefit that God would provide, not because of any merit of ours, but because of what Christ did. Grace. Grace. Paul then alludes to um, what has been termed one of the earliest creedal statements. It was a common contemporary Christian phrase in verse 15 and he says, this is, he says, the saying is trustworthy, the one that you guys have heard, and it's deserving of full acceptance or of universal acceptation. And what's the phrase? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost, says Paul. See, and this is what the Pharisees didn't get. This is what the Pharisees never get. They couldn't understand why Jesus would spend time with tax collectors and prostitutes. They couldn't understand why Jesus would forgive a woman caught in the act of adultery. They couldn't understand why Jesus would talk to a mixed-race Samaritan woman who had had four divorces, I was now trying to find security in a new man. They couldn't understand that. They don't get it, but Paul gets it. And Paul says, you know what? I'm that tax collector, embezzling funds and caught with my hand in the till. That's me! I'm Jimmy Carr. (laughs) Not tax evasion, but tax avoidance, right? Right? They've been saying that it's, it's not a crime, but morally, mm. but I can't lie. If it was me, I'd probably do the same. And from that laugh, so would some of you. <laughs> and and I, say, I say, and Paul says it, I'm that guy. But the religious don't understand this. See, Paul's, I'm that prostitute who is at least getting a little bit of attention and I'm getting paid for it. See, I'm that woman who's been caught in the act of adultery multiple times. See, you're not, you're not, adult, you're not an adulteress just because you sex up another man's wife or you're unfaithful to your wife. Jesus says, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. I'm that guy. I'm that guy, says Paul. I'm that mixed race, mixed up Samaritan woman looking for comfort and security, desperately wanting someone to love me. I'm that person. I'm the prodigal son that wants to go out and get drunk, smoke a whole bag of weed and sex up enough girls and not commit to any of them. And when they get pregnant, I say, what? You better go and abort that. I'm that guy. See, Paul doesn't separate himself from this group. He sees himself as a part of this group. And that's what the law does. See, they don't see what the law is trying to show them, that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And that's what Paul says as he hangs his head. He says, I'm a sinner. Actually, when I think about it, I'm the chief of sinners. And that's the bad news. But listen to the good news. Christ Jesus came into the world... To save sinners. If you're a sinner, you qualify for salvation. If you're not a sinner, well, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. You ought to really be doing something better right about now. But if you're a sinner, you qualify. If you think you're righteous, you're sick and you need a doctor and you don't know it. But if you know you're a sinner, The good news is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to rescue you. He came to rescue me. No matter what you've done, you can be encouraged by verse 16. Paul says, Look, but he says, I'm the chief of sinners, but I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I know that all of us in here can be encouraged by that. Even if you're a murderer. We are in prison once. Done some prison ministry. <laughs> Somebody might edit that and use that to say something I'm not going to say. We were in prison on a prison ministry visit once. And I'm um, a guy, we're talking to this guy, and you know, you're just there, and you, sometimes you, you're not really cognizant of really where you're at and what you're really doing. You ever had that experience? Anyway, we're there, and this guy, after we finish kind of sharing, this guy goes, you know what, just the Lord would never forgive me. Now, this is what you're asking and hoping and praying that someone would say to you. When the guy said it, we were like, what? Like It's like, what must I do to be saved, in a sense? So we sat down and started talking to this guy. Why would you say such a thing? Come on, man, it can't be that bad. Robert, you forget where you are. (laughs) When the brother told me what he'd done, he said, listen, I had a nine millimeter and I unloaded the clip in this guy's head. (laughs) I, I was speechless. I mean, what do you say to, i mean like, a part of me was like, boy, yeah, boy. Yeah. I hear what you're saying now. Boy, I don't even really know if there's any forgiveness for you, bro. And in one, in one sense, I'm looking, I'm thinking, where's, where's the door? How do I, you know what I mean? Just. But even if you're a murderer, I mean, that's what Paul was. Paul would have to go to churches in places like Ephesus and speak to people whose parents he may have murdered, whose children he may have murdered, whose husbands he may have murdered. and you found grace you found forgiveness in the one who came to save and rescue sinners that's why this is verse 16 is good it's good for us it's an encouragement for us Paul's like if God can save me trust me <laughs> he can save you too and he can keep you saved you don't need the law the Lord's done its, it's done its job when you're standing before the cross on your knees, asking God to save you. Paul's like, this is too good. As he listens to himself, he's like, this is too good to be true. And he's like, Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your forgiveness. And if you can see in the text, Paul just begins to praise God. Can you see it in verse 17? To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory. You're amazing, Lord, that you are who you are and you would forgive me. That you would allow Jesus to come, become a man and and, and live a perfect life and die a gruesome death. Not just on the cross, the scourging, the spitting, the whipping. You'd allow all that to take place for me. Thank you to you be honor and glory forever and ever can you see can, can can you see where this double dip digression has brought paul it's brought him to his knees it's brought him to his knees don't hate on the digressions And this is where the false teachers need to be. They need to join Paul on their knees. Stop using the law for the wrong reasons. Understand its proper purpose. It's supposed to help people to see their need for Jesus. Come join me on my knees, says Paul. Now Paul gets back to where Paul went off on a tangent from, which was verse 7. That is his charge to Timothy regarding these false teachers. Look at verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Paul encourages Timothy, reminding him of his calling. And that it was God who had called Timothy... And he had to walk worthy of his calling. Timothy wasn't to stand firm and be faithful just because Paul said so, but because God said so. Wage a good warfare and make no mistake. This is war. Timothy was in a real battle. Paul says, Fight, fight. It's a hard fight, but it's a good fight because we win. And do what these false false teachers don't do, Timothy, verse 19. Keep holding on to genuine faith and a good conscience. Don't distress your conscience. It says, by rejecting this faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The implications are tragic, but they're not irreconcilable. Remember, I asked you to make a mental note regarding one of Paul's confessed sins. In verse 13, remember what it is? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. See, it's the same sin that Hymenaeus and Alexander are guilty of. Did you see that at the end of verse 20? and that's why Paul mentions it to convict them but also to encourage these guys these false teachers see grace working through Paul that if God could forgive Paul he could also forgive them you can you can read first corinthians 5 for kind of more insight to what Paul means about handing someone over to satan but let me end on this paul is saying i know you guys teach the bible But your problem is a lack of love. You don't, forgive me for saying this, you false teachers, you don't love God. Even though you think you do like I did when I was ignorant. If you did, you would obey and not abuse God's word. You guys are just like the scribes and the Pharisees. Just like the Judaizers. You don't understand the gospel. 30 years after this, 30 years later, the Lord Jesus will write a letter to this church outlining the same issue. In Revelation chapter 2, what is the very thing that the Lord will highlight about this church with regards to what they've left? Their first love. And it's tragic, because you go to Ephesus, it's just ruins. The, the church isn't there. Islam is there. And this church died. Exactly what Jesus said, if you don't repent, look at all the great things you're doing. It's good that you're doing the list of about nine great things, but he says you're doing, you've left your first, your first love. That means they're doing all of that church stuff religiously. They're doing it with no... How can you do church stuff? How can you do Bible stuff? How can you do Christian stuff with no love for God in your heart? You're religious. You're a Pharisee. And it's dangerous. And the root of it is false teaching. Home improvement. It starts with knowing what the problems are, right? Now that the havoc has stopped... Paul says, I know I've shouted at you, but I was motivated by love to do so. Now that I've been able to rebuke you and correct you, now I'm going to instruct you, says Paul. That's why chapter two starts off with what? First of all, in chapter one, I told you why. Now in chapter two, I'm going to tell you what? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And your word truly is like a double-edged sword. One one aspect of it, it cuts deep and it causes us to bleed and it leaves us a, a mess, a blubbering mess on the floor. That's the law. And the law has no mercy. You break the law under Moses you are stoned to death. And and yet the, the same sword that cuts one way in judgment and justice cuts the other way with grace. Mercy. Thank you that mercy rejoices against judgment. Father, would you help us to understand your law so that we can look at it like in a mirror? And be exposed for what we really are. And that that, Lord, we wouldn't walk away from that mirror, recognizing who we are and doing nothing about it, but we would look in the mirror and we'd see our issues and we would repent. We'd come to you and say, Lord, would you please fix this? Would you please help me? Would you please save me? Father, you promised to do so and you've given us a great example in Paul. Lord, would you please help us to be committed and devoted to sound doctrine? Would you help us to be committed and devoted to the apostles' doctrine? Lord, would you protect us from false doctrine and from error and from false teachers? In the name of the Lord Jesus we ask, and for his sake, amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.